Welcome to the How to Scale Commercial Real Estate Show. Whether you are an active or passive investor, we'll teach you how to scale your real estate investing business into something big. Hey, David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is great. This is great. We don't typically get the opportunity to interview someone who has been in the financial services industry and yet also has a deep bench of experience on the real estate side. Usually it's one or the other. And it seems like many times those industries kind of are almost at odds with each other where one guy says, hey, real estate's bad. The other guy says stocks and bonds are bad. But you have the experience coming from both sides of the table. I'd love to hear your story. The same questions I ask everybody who comes on, kind of where'd you start? Where are you now? And if you can, you know, briefly tell us those and then tell us how you got there. I'd love to hear that. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I started out in the, in the brokerage business where um, they indoctrinate you in the wirehouse world with the notion that over time, stocks have and will outperform everything else from you know precious metals to real estate to um, bonds or anything else. And they, they have the data to back it up. And so two things you know, early on terrified me. One is someone that knew about discount brokers. So instead of paying me 250 bucks to, to buy 100 shares of stock, he could do it for 20. That was terrifying. And real estate investors. Uh, it seemed like real estate investors were either, this is not completely true, but they're either into real estate only and cash because liquidity is king in that business, or they may have a hybrid approach, which is rare. And uh, even if that's the case, that was pretty much a self, uh, self-made, um, self-directed type investor that wasn't really going to listen to a, you know, a financial professional. But uh it wasn't until I, I got out of the uh, the wirehouse uh, money management or brokerage business and formed my own investment advisory firm that somebody approached me about raising money for an apartment complex. And I thought, wow, that's I could offer all sorts of things to, to my clients to get uh, more diversification and just expand, you know, what my service offering was to attract even more clients, which is exactly what happened. Now, around 2000 and I guess right around uh, 07, 08, there was really a two-year period where I moved completely out of stocks and into junk bonds because there were such incredible yields in that. Um, used them as stock substitutes because you have a lot less risk in bonds than you do stocks. Even though they can certainly default on you, that didn't happen, um, and was very uh, lucky actually to to earn market type returns without any market investments. Mm. And then I met a guy that was lending money to uh, developers, fix and flippers, and that kind of crowd uh, called hard money loans, which were short term bridge loans. Uh, charging 5% upfront or five origination points and 14% interest. And I said, who in their right mind would pay that? And he said, you'd be surprised. I thought, that's great. I said, where does your money come from? He says, we have investors. I said, well, I have investors. And we kind of you know, got his card. He got my card. Uh, we actually met at a friend's office. I had no idea he was going to be there. Um, and then, I don't know, two weeks later, I ran into him at a, at a Starbucks. Uh, 
he was meeting with a with a builder, and he had all of his plans and drawings and all this uh, spread out uh, on a table. And they were drinking coffee, and I introduced myself. I said, "Do you remember me?" He said, "Yeah." And he introduced me to his builder client, and I looked the guy in the eye. This is kind of bold of me, but I said, "I said, uh, why would you pay fourteen percent interest on a loan?" He said, "Well, it's really not what I'm paying that matters; it's what I'm making that matters." And I said, "Oh, okay." And he showed me, you know, on his list of expenses, his carry cost, his his lumber, you know, it's just another expense. And he stood to make, you know, eighty grand on that spec house if he did his numbers right, including all the interest carry. And I agreed to go meet with this guy at his office. And lo and behold, you know, I put a small seven-figure sum into a portfolio of different loans as they came available. And of course, now uh, a lot of these lenders are using a, um, a fund, like a mutual fund, to pool the capital and then make all these different loans. Along the same uh, line, I decided to... Uh, uh, venture off. I actually sold the money management business completely, got out of that, and started forming LLCs for real estate investors. And uh, boned up on my on my skills in the entity formation, asset protection realm because people that own real estate are concerned about uh, being sued uh, or losing their assets to someone that they don't even know. You know that, that at least the apartment or fell fixing a ceiling tile, whatever, and uh, NSA, uh, correctly uh, you know, established or, or uh, created uh, asset protection strategy involves uh, one or more entities that, at least here in Texas and most other states, prevent someone from going in there and, and snatching the assets. And so um, I used my you know, financial background in different types of investments to help me structure entities that are flexible and yet offer this uh, almost bulletproof type of uh, protection. So that's pretty much what I'm doing now. That's fascinating. So I would, I would assume that that, um, I mean, everybody that I know that is in the entity formation asset protection has a very, uh, a legal background. Is that, is that, is, is that something you have, or is that something that's required or is this something that you can self-educate on? I'm, I'm self-taught, but uh, by attorneys. Uh, and, and I got very lucky. Um, very early on in my career, my dad you know, was a uh, an obstetrician, and they have a lot of exposure. And so I became interested in asset protection from day one. And uh, he introduced me to an attorney that taught me a lot about asset protection, wills and trusts, how to read them, the difference between revocable, irrevocable, grantor, trust, everything that I needed to know uh, to empower me as a broker. And then later on. Um, an attorney approached me about a partnership to where I could meet with clients and discuss things with them. And then they would come in and do their part. And together we could create uh, asset uh, protection strategies uh, where there was a lawyer, you know, in the middle. Now an LLC can be formed by a legal zoom or a CPA or a guy seven 11, if he's got the, you know, the cojones to do it. So you don't need a, you do need a legal background, but you certainly don't need a bar license to, uh, you know, form an entity. But sure. the guy that taught me the series LLC uh, business here in, in, in Texas, which we're one of 14 states that has the ability to um, form one, you know, major <clears throat> uh, overarching entity and then have sub entities called series where you could put individual properties without forming yet another LLC. That attorney used to be a U.S. attorney. 
and was a prosecutor and then litigator. And he was the one you'd hire if you wanted to try to bust open a, a, an LLC and defeat it. So he knows how to structure them on the other side, which is to prevent that. Mm. It's kind of like hiring a, a crook to design your alarm system. Right. 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 So it's the same. You know, you can you can I just I'm on bigger pockets all the time. And uh, somebody is posting there today that they can go to LegalZoom and create an LLC cheap. And I, I said, you know, that's true. But you won't know if the parachute's going to open and you're going to rest comfortably to the ground or if you're going to kill yourself until you jump out of the airplane. Right. You won't know. So, you know, good luck. Uh, there's a lot. It's, it's just the people don't understand. It's not just about formation. It's also about how you run it. Are you following the operating agreement? Are you segregating the assets? Are you doing your books? Are you keeping it current with the state? There's a lot that has to happen for you to succeed in the event that somebody comes after you. It's not just getting it filed. That's really you know one-tenth of one percent of the whole program. So I'm fortunate that I've been surrounded by legal counsel. I still have access to them. I mean, I'm on the phone with an attorney at least every four times a week maybe not five, uh, getting advice or, you know, working together. Um, so dealing with me, the client kind of gets the best of both worlds, an investment advisor by training. And yet I have this other uh, uh, experience I can draw upon uh, because even attorneys, they don't understand all the ins and outs of life insurance policies and annuities and, and joint tenancy and rights of survivorship. Uh, they can't. So what happens is a lot of times they draft a really good document that actually doesn't do what the client thought it was going to do. Right. That's how I learned. What I learned is by picking up the pieces afterwards. Oh, wow. So I've got a lot of business from uh, clients that, that went to a so-called, you know, a specialist, but specialists didn't ask if they had parents that might need support, for example, and they got left out of the will, things like that. Parents Parents that might need support. What do you mean by that? Well, let's say that you and your wife come to me and you say, I, you know, I, I want to will for our kids and protect us in the event that something happens. And yet your, your mother is, is just on the cusp of not being able to pay her bills because it's a medical event. So if you died, she would have no one to take care of her financially. So we need to add her to your plan or she could get left out in the cold. Mm. Maybe only for the next five or 10 years, but still. Uh, I learned that because somebody brought it up that they had a, a parent in India that's that's barely making it. And so we created a trust that would provide an income stream for her in the event that he and his wife both perished. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, those are things you just there there's so many facets to this that it's almost um it's it's almost overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Well, to a lot of people. I mean, not if you study it, but um it, it is a, uh, a rather complex uh, endeavor for the, you know, for the layperson. Right. But right. It can, it can be done. In fact, uh, the, the, the most recent, this is really attractive to real estate investors. And it's for me only been the last year that I've even known about this. Uh, but privacy, privacy is a big issue. A lot of uh, uh, real estate investors not necessarily developers who who are marketing their name, but people like, you know, me and you and my clients that invest, they don't necessarily wanting their employees or their neighbors or anybody knowing what they own. Right. And sure. becoming a, a, a target 
because they got into a wreck and somebody finds out they own eight properties or whatever. Right. And now instead of taking the insurance money from the wreck, they want you know to go after the person. So what we've been doing is filing what I call anonymous LLCs. And some states allow that and some don't. Texas does. So I've got a slew of clients now where you'll never find their name in public records. That's pretty great. I mean, Michael Dell. Michael Dell lives here in Austin. You type in uh, his to the appraisal district, and uh, you'll find out that he lives in a forty million dollar house and exactly where that is. Mm. I think that's crazy. Why does he have his name on all of his stuff? So it could be the North Austin Revocable Trust, and nobody can ever know what that is because it's private. Right. So what we do is we use the trust to become the member of the LLC, and the state doesn't ask who's behind the trust. Right. They only want to know who the registered agent is. That can be anybody. Right. Could they so, not? Let me look, can I ask this question? Could they not then go to the registered agent and require them to disclose? Certainly, uh, if the if a judge orders them to. But only then. Right. Like if somebody called me up and said, who is this you know, behind us? I can't. I can't give out that information. Sure. Now, if I get if I get served, uh, I hand the papers to the client. By the way, I do this for about 15 people act as a registered agent. And uh, because most of them don't live here or they don't want their, you know, they, just, they want they want to do the whole privacy thing start to finish. So if they get sued, I get the papers and I hand deliver them. but. It's up to the uh, the plaintiff in that case to demand uh, discovery, and in discovery, you're going to know everything. There's no way to hide. Right. So once that once somebody sues you, um, they they will find out what they want to know, but they have to cross all those hurdles and spend all that money. And if they're going to do it, they're going to do it anyway, right? Sure, sure. So we can't stop that. We can make it less likely. We can make it more difficult. You know, it's kind of like going back to the alarm scenario. You can have the uh, the blinking light in the window. You can have uh, a barking dog. You can have uh, signs everywhere and that uh, motion detector floodlight thing where you step on a property, all of a sudden you're in bright lights. Is it impossible to break in? No. But if the neighbors next door have no lights, no alarm, no dog, and the front door is open, it's just easier to go next door. Sure. It may not be your first choice, but... Um, you know, it's just the path of least resistance. Right, right. No, that's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. I'd love to go back a little bit because you've, in the last, I guess I call it 12, 13 years, you've done a lot of different pieces. Uh, and, and I kind of, I actually really appreciate the transitions as you've gone through them because you went from um, working, you know, a brokerage to owning your own brokerage to then discovering hard money loans and uh, then investing, taking your investors and putting them into apartments. And as you know, a lot of things have changed. You're investing in junk bonds, even you know, which which may have had incredible yields back in you know 2007, 2008. But I would imagine that those that those the risk has shifted in all of those asset classes over the years. It may it may maybe call even the same amount of risk, but it just moved around. Would that be a, a safe analysis or no? Oh yeah. So if that risk has moved around, I would assume that would be one of the reasons why either the risk has moved around, uh, you, you know, so, so then you stepped out of those asset classes perhaps because they either got too risky or the, or the, um, the spreads got too thin, such as in hard money lending. I don't know anybody borrowing money at five and 15 or five and 14 now. You know, no. I think I've seen a lot of two and 10. I've seen one and 10. I've seen two and eight. 
um, you know, cause those, those margins keep getting compressed, which is, you know, one more reason to move on and do something else. So talk to us about how you've kind of seen that stuff, you know, change. And, and then especially as you've seen the risk change now, even into what you're doing now. Um, when you say risk change, are you talking about um, like the, the volatility or can you refine that for me a little bit? Sure, sure. We've got great editors, so they can go back and clean up my questions and we can start from right here. Um, okay. Yeah. So so what, what I'm really asking is that like maybe, maybe in 08, junk bonds had high yields and with those high yields came some risk, right? Um, right. And like maybe even the questions poorly formed altogether. I guess what I have seen is that as the margins get compressed and as as more people pile into a particular investment, typically the riskier it's getting and they don't know it. Right. Right. And so and so 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 maybe maybe right now, hard money loans, even though the, the margins are thin, is far more risky than it was in 2009, say. Oh, I see. I see. Um, yeah, I get I get the uh, uh, the question. Um, so actually they you know the, the 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 world of finance in an economic sense is pretty efficient you know there aren't a group of mice that always get to the cheese first like these hedge fund managers found out last week vis-a-vis uh gamestop right uh they they can be right uh and they can be wrong but uh as far as the, you know the risk of junk bonds um the risk the yields have gone down and the risk of default is is pretty much you know the same. Uh, you know, if you have a triple B versus a triple C, uh, you're going to see a spread difference that's much narrower than it was ten or fifteen years ago. But the risk of default is is pretty much the same. But that was an exception. That was an exception where the market, um, I guess, uh, was inefficient mm. for a period of time where you could get really really good yields without taking the type of risk that you would think I'm talking about buying bonds with a 20% return. That sounds crazy. That's wild. I did it over and over and over. And I got, maybe I was lucky. Maybe it was the research I did, but I had one default, which was the the parent company of U-Haul, the trailer company. And they actually paid more in bankruptcy than, than the bonds. We paid for the bonds in the first place. It's, it was crazy. And that was exactly what this analyst told me. So you just have to be shrewd. And I think hard money right now, if, if I was living on my money, which I'm not, by the way, but if I, if I had passive cash, I've uh, been around hard money, I guess, over 10 years now. And I've seen some defaults, but I've seen um, very few mm-hmm. in my circle of friends. And I know more than one you know, hard money lender. So getting 8%, which is what... I think you can get now as an investor, eight or nine. It's a pretty good return compared to money market. Uh, and I don't think there, yes, there's more risk. Uh, but if you have your money in, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 different loans, like in a fund, it's any defaults going to have very little impact on your principal. Right. If we have massive defaults, then yeah, that's a problem. Right. Um, so I think you can exploit, and the same thing goes for real estate. If you, you know, uh, buy a C a C a C class apartment complex, and you upgrade it to a B class. Your uh, your rents go up over time, and if cap rates stay the same, you do the same analysis on your net operating income, and now the market price has gone up because it's driven by the net operating income. 
Right. That's because you're actually working. You're creating something that wasn't there before. And there's risk in that. But the, 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 we know that people have to have a place to live. So it's apartments, homes, duplexes, by and large, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for other markets because Austin is going nuts right now. But uh, I don't think people are, are suddenly going to stop paying their rent or their mortgage payment. Right. No, I, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. David, I know uh, I know you're out of time. So we're going to we're going to skip all the way to the last question of the final four, which is if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what is the best way to do that? Oh, thank you. Um, so my website is uh, the, the company name 360 Net Worth. It's all together. 360networth.com. And my phone number is 512-464-1110. And I appreciate you uh, having me on the show. David, thank you so much. Certainly appreciate your time today. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.